You're listening to Ecclesia, a study of church history, part of the podcast ministry of Sycamore Baptist Church in Decatur, Texas. My name is CJ Frazier. I'm the senior pastor here at Sycamore Baptist Church, and I would like to personally invite you to join us for worship. For more information about our church, please visit www.sycamoredecatur.com. And now, we hope you enjoy this session's podcast on church history. All right, well, as we get going this evening, we are going to uh, look now at session five in our study on church history. And the title of this evening's lesson or message is Written in Blood. This evening, we're going to consider the first Christian martyrs in the first and second centuries. And we're going to learn a little bit about how the cause of Christ ended up carrying on in spite of the fact that there was so much persecution uh, by the time uh, Christianity ends up becoming the state religion of Rome. But I want to begin this evening with a quote from a Puritan named William Jenkin. He was an English clergyman in the 17th century, and I think that Jenkin rightly summarizes the origin of Christian persecution when he says, Martyrdom came into the world early. The first man that died, died for religion, close quote. And of course, he's referencing Cain and Abel, that Abel was murdered by his brother. Why? For the sake of his religion. You'll remember that Cain murdered Abel out of jealousy because Abel brought a better offering to the Lord than Cain did. And this is a common theme that we find all throughout the scriptures, that religion is oftentimes the reason for murder, particularly faithfulness to the worship of God, because it's the faithfulness of the worship of God that often brings about persecution by the hands of men. It all began in the days of Cain and Abel, and throughout the Old Testament, we see it intensify until the days of Jesus and of his church. But this theme only continues to perpetuate throughout the ages of church history. We will introduce it within the context this evening of the Roman Empire, but we're going to continue to highlight it all throughout our study of church history. For every period of church history, every generation of believers there is some type of persecution that the church is called to withstand. There's no generation that gets a free pass. Virtually every generation of the church is subjected to at least some degree of worldly persecution. And that shouldn't surprise us. Why? Because what did Jesus tell his disciples? If the world hated me, you can be for certain that it's going to hate you as well. It was just as true in first century Rome as it is in 21st century China. There are believers all around the world today that are persecuted for their faith in ways like Christians have always been persecuted. Another Puritan by the name of William Seckler, uh, we had William Jenkins and now William Seckler, he had this to say about the guarding of the truth of the gospel. He said, quote, while magistrates defend the truth with their sword, martyrs defend it with their blood. And so this is what brings us to our study tonight, that eventually whenever you stand for truth, it is going to cost you something. We see it in our world today, and we've seen it throughout every generation of the church from the time that the church first began. And I just want to say this at the beginning 
this evening. Tonight, we're going to talk about some pretty graphic things that believers in the first and second century were called to endure. And we don't glorify that. We don't glamorize it. We certainly don't uh, look at this as the, the epitome of, of following Christ. You have to endure something like this in order to be a true believer. But instead, I want us to be reminded by the Christian martyrs that there is a cost to the preservation of truth, and that's the shedding of blood. The truth of the gospel is often written with the blood shed by the martyrs. And the gospel is worth living for, for certain. But as we're going to find out this evening, there have been many believers throughout the course of church history who have also seen the gospel as worth dying for. And so as we consider the first instances of Christian persecution this evening, we're going to look at what the Christians endured both at the hands of the Jews as well as the Romans in the first two centuries. And while doing so, we're also going to bear witness to the heroic bravery, bravery of early Christians whose deaths only uh, spread the cause of Christ farther and farther. So I want to talk through two headings this evening. First, I want us to consider the reasons for persecution in the first and second century. And then secondly, I want us to remember the persecuted. So first, we're going to look at the reasons for persecution for the early church. Now, as I mentioned, we're going to limit our scope to the first and second century this evening. But as I mentioned also, Persecution is something that you see running all throughout the pages of church history. So we will continue to highlight those who gave their life for the faith as we continue walking through um, our study of, of church history. But what I want to do this evening is just to develop a basis for how persecution began, what Christians were walking through in the first and second century, and how they handled it. First, I want us to consider Jewish persecution, and this is why I had you get ready to look in the book of Acts, because the book of Acts really, I think, is the best record as far as chronicling the persecution that Christians received at the hands of some of them, their own Jewish people in the first century. So look at Acts chapter 4 as we begin this evening. Acts chapter 4, I referenced this in the message Sunday, that this was the first instance of believers being arrested for their faith following the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, as far as the New Testament is concerned. Anyway, it's important for us to, to take note of this. We can look at verses 13 through 22, and we obviously, the, we obviously see the boldness of Peter and John. I just want to highlight very quickly verse 13, because we're not going to read through all these passages. Verse 13, when the Sanhedrin saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. Now take note of this because I believe this is the most miraculous part of this entire uh, passage. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So the very first two men that are arrested in the New Testament for their faith, the things that stick out to the Sanhedrin, number one are, is their lack of education, and secondly, is the fact that they had been with Jesus. What we will see throughout the course of the church's life is so often it's not that God raises up these people who are influential in their day in order to take mighty stands for their faith, but oftentimes it is the weak and the shameful things according to the world standards. It's, it's those people that, that are weak according to the world standards that God uses in order to shame the strong. 
Now, Peter and John, by the providence of God, did not give their lives that day for the sake of the gospel, but they would endure many beatings for the sake of the gospel, and each of them eventually would die for their love for Jesus. Turn with me now to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, just one chapter over. If we look at verses 17 through 42, we see yet another scene of disciples being arrested for their faith. I want to just quickly highlight verses 33 through 39 of that passage. Verses 33 through 39. When the Sanhedrin heard this, uh, talking about the testimony of these, these men who had given um, a healing to a man who was, who, who was previously lame, I believe. Uh, I'd have to go back and look at the context. I apologize for that. But they had done a healing nonetheless. And so the Sanhedrin arrested them for that. When they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. But notice a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Now, amazingly, here is a man who's actually involved in the direct persecution of God's people. And even he recognizes, because God had given him this wisdom or this insight, even he recognizes that if what they are doing is simply a human mortal enterprise, it is going to fall flat on its face. And the movement of Christ and his church will die with his disciples. But if it's of God, this man says, that if you were even to try to oppose it, you wouldn't be able to. And secondly, if you did, you would be found opposing God himself. This is a man saying this, by the way, whose name is Gamaliel. You may remember Gamaliel because the apostle Paul speaks of him as his personal mentor. Paul was discipled by Gamaliel when he was a Pharisee. The persecution only increases in the book of Acts by the hands of the Jews. As we see in chapter 6 and 7, the first instance of martyrdom following the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I usually say that John the Baptist was the first Christian martyr because he was put to death for the sake of Jesus. But after the resurrection in the Bible, the first Christian martyr is Stephen. And so you can go and read Acts chapter 6, verse 8 through chapter 7, verse 60. We certainly don't have enough time to detail all of that this evening, but that is the account, again, of a very normal, ordinary guy, a guy by the name of Stephen, who although he was very ordinary, he was full of power and of the Holy Spirit because, because he walked faithfully with Christ, and he saw Christ even stand to welcome him into his kingdom. Well, finally, following the murder of Stephen, the stoning of Stephen, I want you to read with me Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Acts 8, 1 through 3. Notice there that at the stoning of Stephen, 
There was a man who was holding the coats of those who threw the stones. His name was Saul of Tarsus. You know him as the Apostle Paul. But Acts chapter 8, verse 1 tells us about Paul in his pre-converted state and the way in which Paul sought to increase and really ratchet down the persecution of the early church. Acts 8, 1 through 3, and Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, amazingly, again, God delights in using the least likely people in order to radically shape his kingdom, in order to radically bring the gospel to others, in order to do what only God can do. I think Paul's life and testimony is a great picture of that. In fact, I think I've shared it before, but I saw a quote hanging around some time ago that said that the apostle Paul entered heaven to the shouts of joy of those that he put to death. And that's how the gospel works. It's amazing that God can do that, that God can transform hearts the way that he transformed that of Saul of Tarsus. He took a man who was the greatest persecutor of the church and made him the greatest missionary of the church. Well, this evening, we're going to shift now from talking about merely just the Jewish persecution of the early church to the Roman persecution of the church. And I would just commend to you reading the entire New Testament to see how both of these realities were in play for the early church. Persecution from the Jews, also persecution from the Gentiles, namely the Romans. And this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this evening in talking about the persecution of the church by the Roman Empire. It's important that we note as we begin here that the persecution by the church at the hands of the Romans was relatively mild until about the year 200 AD. It's only about the turn of the third century that things start to get really bad. And you may remember that it's there um, in the third century and on into the fourth century that things only heat up and intensify until Constantine becomes emperor of Rome, is converted, and changes Christianity into the state religion in Rome. But on the other hand, in the meantime, for the first 300 years of the church, Christians were not altogether safe from the Roman government during the first uh, two centuries, excuse me, not the first three, the first two centuries. One historian said this about the early persecution of the church. In the days of the apostles, he says, the authorities of the Roman Empire were generally friendly or at least neutral toward the, G the Jesus movement. Opposition and persecution came mainly from unbelieving Jews and sometimes from ordinary pagan Gentiles but not usually from government officials. However, this was not always the case. In AD 64, the emperor Nero launched the first great official persecution of Christians by the Roman government, close quote. And the reason why I begin here by speaking of Nero's persecution, number one is you've probably at least heard of who Nero was. Um, his, his infamy is, is pretty well known amongst Christian people because that was the context that much of what was going on in the New Testament took place. But in order for us to rightly understand first century Christian persecution, we have to understand 
Emperor Nero. So very quickly, I want to give a biographical sketch of Nero. There he is in all of his glory. This is a marble statue, a rendering of him. Uh, I guess apparently the uh, chili bowl haircut was uh, popular amongst the, uh, the Roman emperors because you seem to see that a lot. I've never understood that, but apparently it was a, a big deal back in those days. Nero was born in around, well, I guess we know the exact date of his birth. It, birth. it was AD 37 on December the 15th. Uh, what I was going to say is that he came into power around sometime October of AD 54. And it really was according to the urging of his mother. Her name was Agrippina. Um, She was married to Nero's stepfather, who was the current emperor of Rome. And rather than putting forth his own son, who would have been the rightful heir to his throne, uh, this emperor allowed his wife to make his stepson, as it were, the next emperor of Rome. And so Nero, as I mentioned, became emperor in AD 54, And initially, he was well-regarded by the people. In fact, for the first decade of his reign as the emperor of Rome, Nero was was well thought of. People listened to him. They thought he was a great leader. He had great confidence. If you were to check the approval rating polls, he would have had pretty high rates among the Roman people. But all of that began to change somewhere around the 10th year of his reign, If you know anything about Nero, you know that he was a very unstable man. In fact, by all intents and purposes, today we might probably, uh, I'm no doctor, certainly not a psychiatrist or psychologist, but it's possible that he would have had some sort of mental disorder. He would have been certifiable by today's standards. Um, he, he couldn't help himself but to, to chase after the strange musings of his own mind. He was sexually deviant on top of that, and he often offended his constituents by claiming that he was an expert in fields that he clearly was not an expert in. For example, he claimed to be a renowned poet and storyteller. And as you may know, during the first century, that was a big deal, and people received lots of training for those things, and Nero most certainly had not received such training. And so I say all that to say this, that by the time Nero had reigned for about 10 or so years, people were starting to lose confidence in him. They were starting to think not only was he an unfit ruler, but that he was perhaps even crazy. He was manic. He would make off-the-handle decisions and, and do just these strange things. And what happened on June the 18th of the year 64 did not help Nero's case one bit. You may remember that date from world history class as the date that Rome caught fire and burned. And guess who got blamed for that fire? That fire, Nero got blamed for that fire. The fire, as I mentioned, began on June the 18th in the year 64, and it lasted for an entire week. The flames eventually devoured three-fourths of the city of Rome itself. And Nero made efforts initially to extinguish the fire, and he even went so far as to open up his own home, his personal garden, for refuge for people to come in and to, and to seek shelter from the flames. He did his best by his own standard to give aid to his own people. But because of the looming suspicions by the general public that Nero was crazy, the rumors began to spread that Nero had started the fire himself. In fact, those rumors started to circulate pretty quickly, and there were even well-formulated stories that Nero supposedly was up in a tower singing a song about 
the destruction of Troy. Remember that Troy had burned with fire, and Nero was he had perhaps started this fire in order to reenact the destruction of Troy, and because he was crazy, he did it to his own people. This was but one of the rumors that was circulating that Nero had started the fire. Well, as you can imagine, Nero needed to find an alibi. He needed to find a scapegoat, and he soon found that scapegoat. One historian said that, quote, two of the sections of the city that had not burned had many Jewish and Christian residents. Therefore, the emperor decided to blame the Christians, close quote. So Nero retaliated. He said, hey, if we're gonna shift blame, I'm pretty good at that. I'll blame this newly founded religion known as Christianity. They're a little bit strange themselves. They're a little bit peculiar themselves according to the common person. And so Nero decided to blame the Christians. Well, as emperor, Nero not only had the ability to blame the Christians, he had the ability to persecute and to punish the Christians for something that they clearly did not do. So the very first large-scale outbreak of persecution by the Roman Empire upon the Christian people was all because of this fire that had taken place in Rome. Now, again, I'll just remind you that God is sovereign over all things. The truth is we, we don't know how the fire got started. There doesn't seem to be, uh, there, there isn't a, a great explanation as to how that may have happened. There's speculations and, and things of that nature, but the truth of the matter is we know that the Christians didn't do it, and Nero obviously claims that he didn't do it, but God is in control of all things. And God would use even the persecution of his people at the hands of an insane emperor in order to bring about the spread of the gospel, even through the shedding of the blood of believers. Here's a little bit about Nero's retaliation. We could say at the very least that it was the most irrational and subhuman kind of retaliation you could imagine. One historian recalls it in the following way. He said, quote, many Christians were crucified. Some were sewn up in the skins of wild beasts, and then big dogs were let loose upon them and they were torn to pieces. Women were tied to mad bulls and dragged to death. After nightfall, Christians were burned at the stake in Nero's garden. Nero literally would light them on fire in order to provide light for his garden. The Roman people who hated the Christians were free to come into the garden, and Nero drove around in his chariot enjoying the horrible spectacle to the full. Close quote. And as you remember, the Romans had taken crucifixion as the idea of the Persians, and the Romans had perfected it. And this is why it became common for Christians to be crucified, just like Jesus was crucified in the first century. So Nero's impromptu witch hunt ends up establishing an alarming precedent for the emperors that would follow him. And even though not all of them were quite as antagonistic of Christians, what we do see is a rising awareness of the presence of Christians within the Roman Empire. And as you can imagine, just as rumors spread very easily throughout the Roman Empire about Nero, so did rumors spread that were false reports about Christians. And even though Christians weren't actively sought for persecution in the days following Nero, there began to emerge a certain stigma about this newfound faith and this newly established religion. And it would only persist as the years matured. Uh, one source that we have uh, that, that is 
survived from ancient writings is between Pliny, who was a, a governor in modern-day Turkey. It was known as Asia Minor during the first century. It's a, some correspondence between him and the emperor of Rome during his day, an emperor by the name of Trajan, who came uh, some 100 years, 50 to 100 years after, after Nero. And in, in that correspondence, we see that there was not really a good understanding of what Christians believed, but the Roman government continued to persecute them because the Christians would persistently not bow the knee to the Roman gods. Neither would they bow the knee to the emperor himself, because as you may remember, the emperor was thought himself to be a god and was worshiped as even the son of God during the Roman Empire's uh, rule and reign. So as all of this is taking place, I want us to see that there became many misconceptions, uh, many misconceptions spread throughout the Roman Empire regarding the Christian faith. And so many of those misconceptions, as you can imagine, had to do with the worship practices of Christians. So I just want to highlight three of them uh, very quickly for you. Uh, The first of that is that their meetings, according to rumors, were sexual orgies. And the reason why is because the Christians called their meetings, many a times they would get together and they would have what was known as an agape feast or a love feast. You may remember the Apostle Paul uh, even chastised the Corinthian church because there were those at their love feast who were starving and there were those who were gorging themselves and eating all the food before others could get there. Um, but they, they called this the, the love feast. And so people looked at that from the outside and said, that must be some sort of sexual orgy. They also greeted one another with a holy kiss, you may remember, in the New Testament. And so people thought that was strange and out of place as well. Furthermore, you may remember that Christians referred to one another as brother and sister. And this was even true of husbands and wives. They would refer to one another as their brother or their sister in the faith. And so you can imagine pretty quickly the rumor spread that Christians were incestuous, that they married their brothers and their sisters. Of course, that was off base and, and that, wasn't, that wasn't true. The second major rumor, and this one is just as far-fetched as the first, is that Christians were cannibals. And the reason why they said Christians were cannibals is because of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is representative of the body and of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can imagine a Christian believer in the first century trying to explain that to a non-Christian, and the non-Christian then goes and tells all their buddies that, hey, these Christians, they get together and they eat flesh and they drink blood. Cannibalists they are. The third rumor, and this one you'll probably get a kick out of, is that they were atheists. And the reason why they were called atheists, as I kind of referenced a moment ago, is because they refused to worship the plethora of Roman gods. They didn't create for themselves physical gods to worship. It was normal in Roman households to have an idol, a physical god that you worshiped. Uh, In the Roman Empire, they were actually forced, people were forced to burn incense to Caesar. And they were forced to say, Caesar is Lord. That's why the phrase, Jesus is Lord, is such a tremendous phrase in the New Testament because they are slapping the emperor in the face. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And because the Christians only worshiped one God, they were viewed as atheistic. We'll get to that, uh, an example of that here in just a moment. And all of that, by the way, is the summary of a historian by the name of Bruce Shelley in his book, Church History in Plain Language. He highlights those, those three main misconceptions regarding 
Christians. And I just want to pause here for just a moment, and I want to remind you that it doesn't matter what day and age you find Christian people, they are always going to be misunderstood. They're always going to be maligned for what they believe. Is it not true today that Christians are misunderstood in our beliefs and that we're not maligned for what we believe? People call Christians bigots today. They even go so far as to call Christians unloving because what kind of God would not allow someone to love whoever they want to love? What kind of God would put limits on love? What kind of God would would demand that I worship him and him alone? There's many different ways that that the unbelieving world falsely characterizes Christians today. But for all of these reasons and others in the first century, Roman persecution of Christians would continue for the next 250 years. And in fact, I started to just list all of the emperors that followed Nero up until the time of Constantine when things began to change. But there were dozens of leaders of Rome who followed right in line, right behind Nero. And as I mentioned, not every single one of them was as antagonistic as Nero. Um, Some of them were were worse. Some of them weren't so bad. Um, You can look at Domitian. You can look at Trajan, as I mentioned earlier. You can look at Marcus Aurelius. I know that he, for some reason, has become really popular today. People love to quote Marcus Aurelius. He was horrible to Christians. He hated Jesus. He hated Christianity. Um, But you could, you could, do further research on that if you're interested, and I could provide you with resources if you want to know more about that 250 years of continued persecution. We move from talking about those misconceptions and talking about the persecution itself to now remembering those who were persecuted. I think that we would be remiss this evening if we did not at least mention some of the first Christian martyrs and some of the accounts of their deaths, because I think that as you look throughout Christian history, one of the most beneficial things you can do is look and see how very normal people lived out their faith in the most intense of uh, situations. So first, as I meant, we mentioned one earlier, Stephen, the first, the first uh, post-resurrection Christian martyr. Stephen actually died, we believe, in around the, the year A.D. 33. And if you know anything about the life of Jesus, we believe that Jesus died between A.D. 30 and 33. So Stephen died really soon after Jesus Following him, you may remember in Acts chapter 8, it records the fact that James, the brother of John, was put to death. That was between 41 and 44 AD, so about a decade after after Stephen. Not too long after that, just a couple decades afterward, we have Peter and Paul both being put to death in Rome. And we believe that they were put to death between AD 64 and AD 67, uh, sometime after that fire in Rome. We believe that that was the reason why both of those men were put to death. Um, and you remember that, that, ne- that, uh, excuse me, that Paul, whenever in the book of Acts he was arrested, he made his appeal to Caesar. And because he was a Roman citizen, he would go and he would stand before Caesar. Acts doesn't record that conversation, but it's very likely that Paul stood before Nero himself and shared the gospel with Nero. It's, it's an interesting thought. We don't know exactly what took place there, but we do know, that, uh, we do know that, that Paul died somewhere between 64 and 67 AD. The same as, as Peter. Paul, we believe, was beheaded in Rome. Peter's uh, martyrdom is a little bit interesting. Um, there's, there's some history and some sources that suggest that Peter was crucified. You've probably heard that before, but that he wasn't crucified the normal way, he felt himself not worthy of being executed in the same way as his Lord. And so he was actually crucified upside down. I don't know if you've heard that, that story before. 
Um, I, I didn't find a good source for that. I'd have to go back and, and look to see where, where that really originates from. Um, but, but along with that story, if I'm not mistaken, I think there's also the idea that he watched his wife actually be crucified in front of him. Again, um, I, I didn't see that in, in any of my sources. I'd have to go look. That may be more legend than, than there is truth to it. You know, sometimes people tend to um, embellish a little bit on some of those stories. But we do know that Peter uh, died in, in Rome around AD 64 or 67. The next one that I want to talk about, though, is a man by the name of Ignatius of Antioch. Uh, Ignatius was born between 30 and 35 AD. So he literally steps on the scene about the time that Jesus dies and uh, raised, is raised from the dead. Uh, Ignatius ends up becoming the bishop of Antioch. You remember that Antioch was a very uh, strategic point of early Christianity, um, that it was there in Antioch that the, the believers were first called Christians. And Ignatius... He goes to pastor the church there in Antioch. Eventually, Ignatius was arrested by the Roman Empire, and he was very old when that ended up taking place. Um, to give a little bit of context and background, at this time in the Roman Empire, persecution of Christians was such that they wouldn't actively persecute Christians, but if they heard rumors that somebody worshiped Christ, they would bring them in for questioning. And the standard practice was, by the governors in the various uh, provinces of Rome, was they would typically bring these people in, and they would ask them if they belonged to Jesus, or if they followed Christ, or if they would bow the knee of the emperor. And if their, question, if their answers to those questions did not appease the governor, many times the governor would just put them to death. He had the right to do that. And if they weren't Roman citizens, they didn't even have to have a trial. Um, if they were just Jewish citizens, uh, or you know, if they were just Jews, they could, they could do that. But uh, some, some would actually give chance after chance for people to recant and to, um, and, to, and to step away from their faith and to deny Christ. But Ignatius was one of those who was a little bit stubborn and wouldn't do that. And even though he was up somewhere around the age of 80, he ended up being sentenced to go all the way to Rome and be put to death in Rome as an example for other Christians. If you follow Jesus, if you don't do things according to the way the Roman Empire says to do them, we'll put you to death, and we'll put you to death publicly. And so on his way to Rome, Ignatius does something pretty incredible. He actually writes seven letters to churches, encouraging them to stay firm in their faith. And those letters were distributed, uh, actually, as he's on his way to Rome, to be put to death. And eventually, he was martyred in Rome in the year 110. And you can see there, there's a, a little mock-up of him. Um, we believe that perhaps lions got a hold of him there in, in Rome. But the second one that I want to mention here as we, as we kind of bring our time to a close is an example of a man by the name of Polycarp. Have you, anybody ever heard of Polycarp? A couple of folks heard of Polycarp? Polycarp, like Ignatius, was also a bishop. He was a bishop in the city of Smyrna. I actually referenced him last week. And you may remember me saying that he was directly discipled by the apostle John, which is pretty incredible, that here's a man who had incredible teaching and incredible discipling from, from one of the, the, the followers of Jesus himself. Polycarp was born in the year 70 AD. As I mentioned, he, he pastored. He was the bishop of Smyrna. He was discipled by the apostle John. And he lived up into the ripe old age of 86, 86. Now, 
I, I know that we've got uh, at least one in here that's, that's close to that age. Can you imagine being, being put to death for your faith at age 86? But I want this evening to read to you the account of Polycarp's martyrdom because um, unlike many of the early Christian martyrs, we have a lot uh, about Polycarp's death. Here's uh, just a little bit about that. I'll just, this is going to be kind of lengthy, but I can't really summarize it any better than, than just to read out the account that we have. So this is from two different sources, but they're, they're fused together, and uh, these, are, these are primary sources concerning the, the death of Polycarp. One says, quote, When the old bishop learned that he was being sought, that is, being sought for his faith, he followed the advice of his flock, and he hid for several days. But after having moved to another hiding place and still being discovered, he decided that his arrest was the will of God. He refused to flee any further, and he calmly awaited those who came after him. Now, before I read this next paragraph, it's, uh, it's possible that the man before whom Polycarp would stand at least knew of Polycarp's situation, knew who he was. He was a prominent figure in Smyrna, so chances are, you know, his, his name was probably a household name. And so this proconsul, this, this man that he stands before, this judge is going to be a little bit lenient, especially due to his age and how frail he must have been at 86 years old. The account goes on to say the proconsul who presided at his trial tried to persuade him to worship the emperor, urging him to consider his advanced age. Again, the judge insisted, promising that if he would swear by the emperor and curse Christ, he would be free to go. But Polycarp replied, for 86 years I have served him, talking about the Lord Jesus, and he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? Can you imagine having that type of boldness at 86 years of age, standing before the people who have the ability to put you to death? Another account continues saying that the judge said, simply swear by Caesar, the governor pled. I'm a Christian, said Polycarp. If you want to know what that is, set a day and listen. Persuade the people, answered the governor. Polycarp said, I would explain it to you, but not to them. Then I'll throw you to the beasts. Bring on your beasts, said Polycarp. If you scorn the beast, I'll have you burned. Then Polycarp delivers what I believe to be one of the boldest lines in all of Christian history. He said, quote, you try to frighten me with the fire that burns for an hour, and you forget the fire of hell that never goes out, close quote. Can you imagine having that level of confidence, not only for life, but for your death? in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he, not Caesar, was Lord. I mentioned that Christians were accused of being atheists. Uh, I, I kind of skimmed over it. I didn't want to include everything for the sake of time, but embedded with uh, these two accounts that I just read to you, there was also the charge that, that Polycarp was an atheist, and they said, if you will just renounce the atheists, talking about the Christians, then we will let you go. And Polycarp boldly pointed his finger. He said, I renounce all the atheists and pointed at all of his accusers. And he said, you are the atheist because you don't serve and worship the one true living God. This type of boldness is certainly 
not as common as I wish it were. But it also, I believe, absolutely solidifies the fact that Christ is with his church, and it's Jesus who builds his church. And you'll remember that the word tells us that, or Jesus actually reminded his disciples, that they should not worry about what to say when their hour of judgment before men comes, because the Holy Spirit would tell them what they were to say. I would venture to say that you'd be hard-pressed to find that type of boldness come merely from the mortal heart of a human being. I believe that the Holy Spirit of God so resided upon Polycarp and upon many like him to give him boldness beyond what they had themselves and in order to even give them the words that they should say in their hour of martyrdom. In conclusion, I want to read to you a quote from a man that I referenced last week. You'll remember that I didn't speak all that highly of a man by the name of Tertullian because at the end of his life, he ended up embracing some, some views that we would say today are heretical. But Tertullian did write a lot of wonderful things regarding the Christian faith. And a little while later, Tertullian was after Polycarp. He was after Ignatius. He lived uh, during the time of, of Trajan and Pliny, who I referred to earlier. But he wrote a, a work called Apology. And Apology, I'll just remind you, the word apologetics doesn't mean apologizing for the faith. It means defending the faith. So he wrote a book defending the faith. And here's what he said about Christian martyrs. Catch his words. He said, quote, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. Your injustice is the proof that we are innocent. Therefore, God suffers or allows that we thus suffer. Nor does your cruelty, however exquisite, avail you. It is rather a temptation to us. The oftener we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed, close quote. And that last sentence may be familiar to you because it eventually morphed into a far more familiar mantra. And it became a mantra that the early church embraced and held on to, especially during great periods of persecution. And that mantra is this, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That as Christian after Christian throughout the pages of church history laid, would lay down their life for the sake of Christ, in a similar yet dim expression of what Jesus had even done for them. There's no way that it could, could compare as a straight-across analogy to the, to the uh, sacrifice that Christ gave. But in order to mirror Jesus, in it, and like Paul said, becoming like him in his death, um, you know, Paul perhaps even foreseeing what would happen to him, as Christian after Christian does that through the sake of Christian history, the church doesn't die but rather the church grabs deeper roots through those seeds of planted saints in order to grow, in order to spread. What I pray that we've seen tonight is the testimony to the fact that the more the church is persecuted, the more she prevails.